Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast for the Manchester Evening News. I'm Rich Fay. I'm delighted to be joined once again by Samuel Luckhurst. Hello Rich, good to see you. Good to see you as well. And Tyrone Marshall, how are you both doing? We've had the international break. You both must be excited to have club football back this weekend. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's good to have it back. It's good to have time off as well and, and try and recharge my batteries for the run-in and see if I can prove myself to, to the manager and yeah, <laughs> secure my future. You are the Harry Maguire of the Emir, aren't you, Samuel? There is, there is, there is no off day. I, 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 what, overrated, overpriced. Yeah, that could have gone one of two ways, that. Why, we, why meant did, it, we meant it in the best way. Widely despised by the fan base. Yeah, you fill in the blanks yourself when you're listening to this. But yeah. It was all complimentary. I guess if you're Harry Maguire, God knows who you are, Tyrone. Any, any suggestions? Who do you want to be? Uh, I, who I want to be? Um, Tyrone Martial, wasn't it? In the Tyrone, Tyrone Martial, I have been previously in the MEN, yeah, a uh, fine byline. My, my French brother, Anthony, when he, when he was doing the business. But yeah, I suppose I suppose if Samuel's Harry Maguire, maybe I'm Victor Lindelof. On borrowed time? <laughs> <laughs> Not what I was thinking, but probably, probably a fair analogy. Sorry to the Scandinavian listeners. Yeah, it was, it was too good to resist. And firstly, <laughs> I, I think Lindelof has, has some quality. He's, He's had not, a very good season, I think. Yeah, but long term, time will tell. That's my opinion, anyway. Uh, Injury prone. So many ways this could go. Let's get back on track while we can. We're recording this on Friday. Just had Oligon Solskjaer's press conference. Brighton at the weekend. United were dismal in the last game for international break. That defeat to Leicester. United all but assured, really, of top four football. Though it's a, it's a difficult one to to judge because even if they were to drop points, of course, it would be disastrous. But it wouldn't probably have too much of an impact in the scheme of things. But Samuel, at the press conference today, the team news was in. Marshall and Lindelof, two players who are actually doubts for the game against Brighton. I them trained this morning. I did, that was one of the maybe only stories in international break was Marshall getting injured for France. What what do you what was it sort of the mood like at the press conference this morning from from, from Solskjaer? I think he was quite chirpy. I suppose where he hadn't spoken to any of us for two weeks, that that would have helped his mood. And it, it, he said that. I think these, these program notes have come out to those who are season ticket holders and, and are able to read it well in advance. And he sounded upbeat in that. He didn't mention the Leicester result whatsoever in his program notes. Uh, he obviously touched upon the Milan win because that was the last time they won. But I think it was just as well for United that it, it was an international break immediately after that Leicester game because it was a bit of a horror show and not just from Fred. I think Solskjaer's management that day was just pretty mystifying from from start to finish. Uh, but they're mo- they're able to move on from it quite quickly, and th- there is still an awful lot to play for this season. It was it was absolutely vital they won at least of at least one of those cup ties in the last week before the internationals came in, and of course they did that in Milan, and they've got a very very good chance you'd think of at least reaching the Europa League final, given the way the the draw has panned out for them. But it is that time of the year now when just recalling previous press conferences from this time um, in, in past years when you've come back from uh, March international breaks. Not last year, unfortunately, it, it went rather pear-shaped there with with the pandemic. But it, it is a case of not not just looking ahead to the end of the season, but, but looking beyond that because the, the window is, you know, it's, it's going to be open very soon. And it, it, even the fact that it's still, I guess, in terms of the actual time frame until it technically does open, it doesn't make much of a difference because everyone's in that mindset. You've seen what was happening in Barcelona and Madrid on Thursday with Raiola and Alfinger Haaland rocking up um, 
in both cities. So, uh, of course, Haaland was brought up in the press conference. Of course, Solskjaer was very coy on the matter. But um, there the, the are an awful lot of decisions to be made uh, between now, uh, the end of the season and beyond. And it's not just all about the, the actual football games either. Yeah, it's interesting that one that Samuel said, and I, I sort of alluded to it myself. You know, the fact that United are almost certainties for the top four this season, and then the Europa League. Solskjaer reiterated today, he went they back on his console. He said a trophy doesn't always signify progress by saying he wants to go all the way in the Europa League. But with United basically assured of Champions League qualification next season, then there really is an onus on on what they can do at the summer. And as Samuel said, there was no surprise to tick Harland off your bingo card at the presser today. What have you made of of all the antics this week? Um, well, it's the it signified the start of the Erling Haaland beauty parade, really, hasn't it? I mean, it was no surprise that penniless Barcelona it was was the first stop of the tour, and surprisingly, there was TV cameras there to to capture to capture it for Minariola and Juan Laporta. I mean, it suits both, really. Laporta getting his name out there as someone trying to sign the biggest players, and Raiola signifying that he's firing the starting gun on on Haaland's next club. It's hard to see how Barcelona could possibly fund a move, but I don't think it hurts either for it to be in the public spotlight. It, I mean, it's all very unedifying, really. Very helpful for us, it must be said, but unedifying from a footballing perspective, I guess, that it's being played out so publicly that, you know, suddenly he's in Madrid. It's almost like it's being filmed from an Amazon documentary that it's it's so public, really, with, with what's going on. And, you know, there's no doubt that the next two months and the summer is all building round Erling Haaland, really. I think there's obviously a fascination in where he's going to end up, but I think the bigger fascination is where he doesn't end up, to be honest, because there's lots of clubs out there who need a striker. Obviously, Barcelona and Real Madrid would love to sign him, but would have to sell their grandmothers to do it. City and United both want him. Chelsea both want him. The obvious two clubs that are in most pressing need of a striker is City and United, but at least one of them isn't going to get him. Yet there doesn't appear to be any sort of plan B out there for, for either club. When you try and think of potential striker signings, there's there's no obvious plan B alternative, yet someone's not going to get him and he's going to have to think of one and, and find one. So I think it's going to be interesting to see who, who doesn't end up with him. But yeah, I think this week has, has certainly signified the, the start of the circus. Uh, you know, it's modern football, I suppose, that these things find a way into the public domain and that someone in Haaland's camp or more likely Barcelona has, has tipped off sport that this meeting's happening. And like we say, it, it looks good for, for Laporta. I'm sure Borussia Dortmund probably aren't, aren't too keen on, on how it's being played out in public, given he is a player who's still got a few years remaining on his on his contract. It's not ideal for them, but I imagine it's not going to slow down. I think the next two months, an awful lot around Haaland's future is, is going to be played out in public. Yeah, I'm going to resist saying Sergio Aguero in terms of uh, backup options for a striker this summer, don't you worry. Uh, Samuel, I guess that Taron sort of said it himself there, that although it's fascinating maybe from a neutral point of view to see these stories with Haaland materialise from Dortmund's point of view, it's, it's not what they want to see at all. And that's the underpinning sort of worry for United, isn't it? That even if they were to go for Haaland, then there is the Mina Raiola factor in it. Yes, I mean, the context with Laporta is, and I don't know if both of you remember, but certainly a lot of listeners won't because they weren't born at the time, but when Laporta was going for the presidency at Barcelona in 2003, he made a big play to try and sign David Beckham. Uh, he, he Beckham actually pretty much formed the crux of Laporta's campaign and he got in as the Barcelona president. And of course, Beckham didn't sign for Barcelona, he signed for Real Madrid, but it did Laporta no harm whatsoever, linking Barcelona um, to David Beckham and the potential of it. And it, it kind of outlined his ambitions at that time. And what happened was that Barcelona ended up signing Ronaldinho instead. He was the best player in the world over probably a 
two or three year period. They won the Champions League. They won back to back La Liga's all on Laporta's watch. So there's probably an element of that, as Ty touched upon, happening this time with Haaland because Barcelona couldn't even afford Eric Garcia in the last summer transfer window to sign him from Manchester City. And I'm not even sure City were looking for, for eight figures for Garcia because he's out of contract this summer. So it is a, when I saw it, I thought, what the hell is going on here? Because, mm-hmm. you know, Raiola and, and Alfinger Haaland are not daft. They, they know which, which clubs can afford to, to sign Erling Haaland. And unless there's some, I mean, some Real Madrid have always found a way of financing major moves, whether it's through, um, you know, the council helping out and paying off the debt on their training ground and things like that. And there was a story I was told about how they actually got the funds to sign Gareth Bale. And they did not get the funds from what they had available to them. They had to go to to a third party to finance that move. So there's always, it seems, with some of these eminent clubs, if there's a will, there is a way. I still don't think Barcelona can justify it when you look at just how eye-wateringly high their debt is um, to go out there and sign a striker who is comfortably going to fetch nine figures this summer if he does leave. And I suppose that's the issue with with Haaland. Dortmund, understandably, won a hell of a lot of money if they are to sell him this summer. And even a club like City, who, you know, seem to pretty badly want him. I'm not I'm not too I'm not sure even they can really justify that expense. City have made a big point in recent years about how principled they are with the way they spend money, which, you know, you kind of you know, roll your eyes out because they've, they've spent billions or however much they've spent since um, they were taken over in 2008. But I think their record signing is Ruben Diaz, who costs 64 million, which for a club who are owned by by a state effectively, that is a modest amount um, to have your record signing at. And I think up until a point, they had this principle of not spending more than £60 million on a player. Um, so bearing in mind that Ruben Diaz cost about £5 million more than Angel Di Maria did six years earlier when he joined United. It, it is quite impressive how they've gone about that. So to go from that to, to Haaland, if, you know, the record, if, if Haaland was to become a City signing, that would be obviously their club record, but it would probably be, it probably cost twice as much as, as Ruben Diaz uh, minimum. So I think Ty's probably right. It's, it's more interesting as to which club he doesn't end up at and I know Chelsea are pretty adamant that they wouldn't be uh, outbid for him, but I'd, I'd be surprised if Haaland ended up there, despite the lure of London and working with Tuchel and the good work he's doing at Chelsea at the moment. You still feel as though, in terms of England at least, that it would have to be one of the two Manchester clubs that he'd end up at. Yeah, like you said there, Samuel, I think it, the projected fee would probably be like the third highest play, paid for anyone in, in the history of football, only behind Neymar and Mbappe to PSG. So, Ty, I guess from the United point of view, do you think United can therefore then finance a move for Haaland this summer themselves? I think United's need is so pressing that they probably could, but I think it would leave the pot pretty much empty for anyone else. I mean, United have got the possibility of, of raising maybe 50, 60, 70 million, maybe more from, from player sales. If they want to sell Jesse Lingard, he's increased his value considerably. There's Dallow who could leave permanently. One of the goalkeepers could leave permanently. So there's options there for United to, to raise some cash. But you know they, they've preached for the last, what, 12 months now that while the pandemic's going on, it is not going to be business as usual. But their need is so pressing and he is such a long-term investment that I think they probably could find the money if United felt that, that he was available. I would, I would probably make City favourites to sign him at the moment, but it, it, it's a good point Samuel raises that City basically don't get involved in bidding wars. And once a bidding war surfaces, City tend to back away from it. We saw that with the summer that Harry Maguire was 
available when United came in and City just basically folded their cards and said, we're out. So if suddenly it turns into a bidding war for Haaland, then you can kind of see, you know, that being, that being, that can, that's the only reason I can see that City won't sign him. I know Guardiola said in his press conference today that it's impossible that they can afford a striker, but we know they've got the money available. And as, as diligent as they've been financially and in terms of signings, you know, they have a squad of 60 million players rather than, one player or two players at 100, 150 million, then and like we say, they do walk away from bidding wars. But again, Haaland's a once in a generation player. City need a striker. Gabriel Jesus just ain't going to cut it. And no. I think if you you look at the number of chances that City create and you put Haaland in that team, and it, it's a free, pretty frightening prospect. So it is going to be fascinating to, to see where he goes. I think both teams probably can afford him and will find a way to afford him, but it will certainly um, bust the bank. And I don't think there's a lot of talk about. You know, Raiola's relationship with United, which is obviously not good. His relationship with Guardiola, which is probably even worse. I don't think any of that will come into it at the end. His relationship with Juan Laporta, by all accounts, is, is very good, which is why the events in Barcelona is, is probably a bit of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and, and it suits both parties. But Minariola didn't get where he is by letting personal grudges get in the way of a good deal. And if it turns out to be a good deal for Haaland to go to United or City, then I, I don't think he'll he'll worry about that either way. But we know his you know his relationship with Guardiola is probably even worse than his relationship with with United. But I, I can't see that coming into it. Yeah, there's a large pinch of pinch of salt to take with that. But Samuel, as you sort of wrote last year as well, United were prepared to invest a world record a club record fee, sorry, in Sancho, but they felt that deal wasn't financially viable, and the money will be there if they really do deem it to be a deal which is worth taking with Haaland to some of your sense. Uh, interestingly enough, Samuel, as well, you asked. Solskjaer at the press conference about his sort of vision for the summer, what players he had in mind of keeping. He said, you know, there is a certain picture in mind from how he wants the squad to look in August, but he reiterated that two months is a long time in football. So basically, what is the stance on United this summer? We get the impression that player player sales will have to supplement that transfer budget. I think that's the issue at the moment. And it was why I asked him it really, in that there are too many question marks over players' futures from David De Gea to Brandon Williams to Paul Pogba. You know, it, it ranges from the most expensive earner in the squad to the starriest player, if you like, to someone who's literally not started a league game all season. In Brandon Williams's case, United have, have looked at signing a, a backup right-back for Aaron Wan-Bissaka, and that's the role that Williams has been occupying in the last three or four months. So what happens with him? Do you do you send him out on loan? I think he does need a loan. I don't think anybody would really dispute that. He's just not playing enough football this season after playing a surprising amount of football last season and playing in all those semi-finals that United reached. But it goes it goes beyond those players. Matter and Cavani are out of contracts at the end of the season. Um, Eric Bailly, a decision has to be made there. You either sell him in the summer or you try and time down to a reasonable contract. I think the length of that will be quite interesting because United are bound to be reluctant to give a four-year deal to buy because of his injury issues. I don't think he's broken 20 appearances in the season since his first season at the club, which is pretty dismal. And he missed the last two games. Then he went on international duty with the Ivory Coast. You wonder how injured was he? Is there a situation brewing there? As, as Ty said, Lingard has been excellent for West Ham. 
and I still I still wouldn't think United are of the position that right let's let's bring him back let's give him a new contract straight away I think Solskjaer probably made up his mind on Lingard before the the restart of the season last season uh, I thought you I think you could see it brewing certainly just before football went into sh- football was shut down Lingard was not getting in squads and there was that infamous flashpoint in the derby when Solskjaer berated him saying if you do that again you're effing off uh, I, I don't think anyone's ever seen Solskjaer get that angry with a player, but it's it's clear that there's you know although there's there's respect between Solskjaer and Lingard. Lingard said a couple of things while he's been at West Ham, saying that he was so fit during lockdown, he looked after himself, then he didn't get any chances. And in fairness to him, when he played. I know it's only Luton, but when he did play at Luton early in the season, he did pretty well. He probably should have had a few more chances. But when you looked at the United squad at that stage, you didn't really see any room for him. And it's not a surprise he's playing as well as he is at West Ham because he's he's a top top half of the Premier League level player. Um, I think he's proved that over the years, just what he's done with United. And then beyond him, Pogba, what happens there? Even players like Andres Pereira, Diogo Dallo, as Ty said earlier, they're players that have still got a fair bit of time left on their contracts and it's going to be difficult to sell them permanently in the summer if United indeed uh, want to do that. So the more you think about it, the more you could have like a, an 11 of question marks there really over players' futures and all of them have an impact on how United will go about their business in the summer. Even someone like Pereira, OK, he's he's small fry, he's been out on loan, but he still earns a decent wage. He's still a, a first-team squad midfielder for United so he is occupying room that you need to you know if you've got him there you can hardly justify going out there and saying look we, we want to sign a we want to sign Declan Rice or someone like that I think there's I think irrespective of whether Pogba goes or not I think United do need a midfielder but there's no way that's high on their priority list um, if, if Pogba goes they absolutely need a midfielder but if, if they manage to keep him for one more season and a, a, a sanguine with him going on a free next year, potentially, then they certainly can't justify a midfield signing when centre-back and centre-forward are probably the two main priorities. Yeah, like you say, Sam, it seems almost every day a new priority sort of emerges and there's always a debate depending on whichever whatever the result was of the last game of what United need to strengthen the most as well. I know particularly the Leicester game really did highlight the need for a specialist sort of defensive midfielder, in my opinion, in midfield. Yeah. Ty, one of the questions that keeps on occurring in Solskjaer, I was probably sick of it in his press conference today as well, is goalkeeper. <laughs> Henson versus De Gea, we all know it's coming. What's your take on it? Well, my take on it is that I think Sunday will, will tell us an awful lot from a purely goalkeeping perspective, I think I would be picking Dean Henderson as, as the number one at the moment. But I think there's probably more to go into it there. Solskjaer's been asked the question a lot this season about how he manages the situation beyond next season. It's always felt like this is a one-off, one-season shootout and whoever loses out is going to want out at the end of the season. I don't think either would consider themselves a number two goalkeeper for, for more than a season. The issue, I suppose, is if you if you go with Henderson now, how do you get rid of De Gea in the summer? I mean, where are De Gea's options? You're probably talking PSG or a smaller club in Spain. It's hard to see how one of Spain's big two need him. And we know he's you know, he's the best paid goalkeeper in the world. I don't think he's going to get a deal like that again at another club. So if he wants to, or if he's number two and wants to leave, I think he would need to take a pay cut to go and play first team football elsewhere. You would think that's not part of Solskjaer's thinking, but you never know. One of those 
like I say, one of those goalkeepers probably needs to leave in the summer there. They're paying goalkeepers six hundred, seven hundred thousand pounds a week at the moment, including Romero. And it's a situation that's not sustainable, especially in a pandemic and Romero will leave and you'd imagine one of the two will will leave. And I think whoever he picks on, on Sunday is probably going to give us a much clearer indication of who he sees as, as his number one. Henderson's had that run of six games. He made a mistake against AC Milan. He should have saved that header in the, in the first leg. But aside from that, I thought he was very good. I think he's shown he, he can do things that De Gea perhaps can't. He's a slightly more modern goalkeeper, but De Gea's built up a, a deep reservoir of, of loyalty at United. And I think Soskar's aware of that. And it's, you know, it's difficult to see, but I... I would be looking to move De Gea on this summer, I think, in just accepting that it's, you know, it, it's come to its end. It's interesting that he, him and Aguero both arrived from Atletico Madrid in, in the same summer on different sides of Manchester. So perhaps it'd be fitting if they both departed Manchester in the same in the same summer as well. And I think from a United viewpoint, that would probably be ideal, ushering in a new a new younger number one and, and getting a high earner off the books. But I don't think it'd be easy by, by any means. And of course, there's well, Samuel, as, as Ty touched upon there, that even if you say you want to get rid of maybe De Gea, Henderson might be the one who's the more marketable player this summer. It, this is a hypothetical question as well. But if United were to get rid of De Gea, say, do you then think a backup keeper would need to be signed as well? Or do you think... You just have one season, Henson number one, and just throw the likes of Kovar, Grant, even or or Bishop into into the equation if you had to. I think you've answered the question there. <laughs> Unfortunately for United, given that they've got this like endless shopping list, that's probably something else that you need to tag on to it. And it, it's, I mean, they got Romero for free in 2015, which was you know, as bargains go. That was a real bargain because I I was very skeptical of him. I, I made that mistake of just judging him on how he looked at the World Cup with Argentina, where he just didn't look particularly de- dependable, but he's he's been an excellent buy for United. And it's a pity that this season has been a write-off and the relationship between himself and the club has, has become quite strained because he didn't get that transfer in the summer. But, I mean, Kovar, as you said, he, he had his loan uh, ended cut short at, at Swindon and didn't get a new one. Nathan Bishop is a very, very strange case. Who, someone who was bought then given a new contract during that time I think he has he has actually made the bench in the last couple of months but he's been joined by Lee Grant on the bench you know there were times when United were listing two goalkeepers on their on their bench um he, I don't think Nathan Bishop's played a competitive game since December 2019 and he came from Southend so you'd think that I mean w- what long-term future he has at United I think is anyone's guess but you'd think that it's you know next season he's got to be sent out on loan Grant is there any point giving him a player's contract when he's even been listed as a coach on on team sheets this season? I really don't see any sense in that. So given that Romero is going to be released, you, you do have to sign sign a goalkeeper. I think if, if United do manage to get Henderson or, or De Gea out on loan with the, the, the buying or certainly the, um, the loan club, um, taking them on and taking on the majority of their wages, that would be a result. But I just think when you look at Henderson signing that contract last year, um, which was a five-year deal, De Gea's got two years left on his with the plus one option. And just, it seems, it feels like they've been going in opposite directions very gradually over the last couple of years. Henwood's, Henderson's been on an upward curve. De Gea's been steadier this season, but he's, he's still had a pretty you know, torrid two years, all being told. And I suppose the only saving grace for, for both of them is that because of this running coming up where they have got up to five games in the Europa League, potentially, you can see them both of them getting a fair share amount of games to the extent that neither of them will miss out on a place in England's or Spain's squads. 
uh, at the Euros. But after this season ends, it's, it's just unsustainable keeping both of them at the club next season. One of them has to go, be it a permanent sale or a loan deal. I think Juventus would be a very good fit for De Gea. It's, it's, it's strange that Juventus, who've done such great work in the transfer market over the last decade, thought Rorschach Chesney could be then next number one after Gianluigi Buffon. And you know, Chesney made the mistake that led to them being knocked out of the Champions League by Porto. So I, I think Juventus would be a very good fit for De Gea. And it's not as if he would cost you know, his, his valuation in the market at the moment. You'd probably say it's between 30 and 40 million pounds. It might be less than that if... Um, if Henderson becomes recognised as the new number one at United this weekend. Yeah, it could be interesting to see. And like Solskjaer said, it's pressed today. He reiterated they will both get a chance, but ultimately he's going to have to make that decision at the end of the season. Ty, another thing which has been in the news today, Samuel tweeted it himself, the programme notes ahead of Brighton and Solskjaer paid tribute to Nicky Butt, who left the club in international break to seek a new challenge. He was linked with a possible reunion with Roy Keane at Celtic. That's not going to happen. He was linked to him moved to Derby to join Wayne Rooney. He's been linked to the England under-21 job. Just how big a loss do you think he'll be for United, though? I think he'll certainly be a loss. He's fulfilled a number of roles over the last nine years. He knows intimately how that um, how that academy setup works. And I think he's had an impact on a lot of the players that, that come through. And more recently, he was providing that sort of that bridge and that link between the academy and the first team. And when we've seen how many players have, have made the step up from the academy to the first team, even just to train, recently in this season it's probably a vital role to to fill really it, it can be quite daunting for a 17 18 year old you look at Chola Shorteri for example going from training at the academy to, to training with the first team and if there's a familiar face there even just on the sidelines or within the building that you can talk to and, and get advice from it it probably helps so in that regard you would certainly say it's a loss the way his departure was phrased suggests he wants to strike out on his own um but clearly he didn't have a job lined up otherwise you would probably have, have heard about it now but you know he, he's probably got managerial ambitions of his own but i think it, it will be a loss for united it, it's how you go about filling that role really they announced this big reshuffle two weeks earlier and, and there was no mention of this which suggests it's come relatively out of the blue otherwise you'd think it would have come under the umbrella of the changes with uh, John Murta and, and Darren Fletcher. So maybe it's a role Fletcher can fulfil. He, he's got a background similar to Bott, whether it's something he can take on or, or they look to fill the role. It, it's probably a role that you need an ex-player and an academy graduate in just so they know what, you know, they, they can speak from experience of knowing what those players are, are experiencing. So it, it's perhaps a role that, that Fletcher can take on. But, you know, I think everyone in the academy and, and Solskjaer was pretty pleased with the work that, that Bott had done and the way he'd helped some of those youngsters come through. So in those terms, it, it probably is a loss. Yeah, of course, but was one of the, we, we went out with Solskjaer, didn't he, for that Astana game in November 2019. He was called up to the coaching staff as well when United had the uh, the, the coaches who tested positive or, or and you know they had to get the new ones in. And Samuel, I guess we can now look ahead to Brighton this weekend. The extravaganza, how else would you want to spend a nice Easter Sunday evening at Old Trafford? But there is a serious tone to the game. And, you know, United this morning as well, they launched their new anti-discrimination campaign C Red, which is a campaign which aims to confront the scourge of race the scourge, sorry, of racism and discrimination in the game. Uh, what more can you tell us about this? And Solskjaer said at this press conference as well, didn't he, that you'll be able to see at the stage of just how how much United are behind this and hopefully trying to make a change once and for all. Yes, the I, I thought the video that they released um, as part of the press release was was pretty powerful actually. It was brilliantly edited, 
uh, impeccably researched the the narration, the artistry in it, and just the, the memories that it harked back to. It, it essentially posed a question to to racists, really, whether they can actually stop being racist. Uh, as as blunt as that sounds, because it pretty much said like. Are you going to hold it against Andy Cole that he scored the title-winning goal in '99? The Cole and York link up play in in the new Camp Lingard's Cup final winner, Marshall's debut goal, Rashford's winner in PSG. It was just a celebration of how diverse United squads have been throughout the years. Obviously, Alex Ferguson's first signing was Viv Anderson, who was a black player as well. Remy Moses was a very revered player. By United fans in the 80s, you've had you know, a Korean like Jisung Park, a Japanese like Shinji Kagawa contributing to, to title-winning campaigns. It, it, it goes a long way. Quentin Fortune, you know, come from South Africa to play for United as well. Even like last year, Odin Igalo had a very good impact in, in, in the short term. So that's, that's the great contradiction, um, sadly, with, with racists in general. I think I've probably said it before, but you can you can imagine, and I, I say that you know you have to be careful when you talk about these topics at times. But um, I think Will Self touched upon it on Politics Live a couple of years ago when he said every racist in the UK would have voted for Brexit, and then you can imagine some of those racists celebrating the Brexit referendum result by going to a curry house or ordering a curry, completely oblivious to the irony of it. And so sometimes you just have to be pretty basic in sending out that message. And the message United sent out with this Sea Red campaign, this celebration of diversity, is a very, very simple one to that gets through to people, gets through to fans. And you've got to commend the club as well for actually taking screenshots of the racist abuse that has been um, sent to some of their players and putting it in this video, packaging it up and, and not hiding the pseudonyms that some of these cowards uh, go by online. Yeah, exactly. That there's no the club have every right to do that and call them out and that's the, the way that hopefully we can move towards this change so definitely all get behind that one I know most of you listening as well we hope you all do as well moving on to the game tie and two weeks break it's difficult to actually maybe talk about the team news and the momentum and what happens in, in that aspect what type of squad would you go for though obviously if Marshall and Lindelof are both sort of doubts for the match you might say that they should be rested rather than risked with such a packed schedule ahead what type of team would you go for? Um, I suppose it's difficult to say, really, with with the fitness issues, especially in in the forward line of of knowing who's fit and and trying to you know trying to get players in, involved up front. There's obviously a shortage of players there at the moment. If Lindelof isn't available, then you would think Baye is, having been away with the Ivory Coast, so he can come in there. Uh, it was a good international break for Pogba. He got some some decent minutes under his belt for for France, and France did an awful lot of travelling during that international break, playing in Astana and then playing in Sarajevo. I think it was on on the way home from there. They did a hell of a lot of travelling, but the minutes would have done Pogba some good. And this is the type of game that he should be played in one of those two deeper midfield roles. So you would think, <clears throat> excuse me, he should be starting there. And then beyond that, I guess the front three will probably pick itself in in terms of who is fit and, and who is available from from the players they have. It'd be nice to see. Ahmad getting a start, but I still don't think we're we're there yet. And you know, there's not a great deal of jeopardy really for United in in the running. They the challenge now is to get second and, and make second their own. But they have an easier run in than than Leicester. They still got to play Leicester at Old Trafford, so that should be fine. But when you set up, you know, the, the watchword from Solskjaer and Woodward over the last month or so has been progress. And when you set up progress as the main bar you're being judged against, it, it makes every game <clears throat> important really. And I think you know, United have been harked on about how they're twelve points better off than last year, but to really cement progress, they need to kick on from that. They took 21 points in the last nine games last year, so they, they need to finish the season well rather than slow down on that front because 
they've said they want to be judged on on progress in the league. So they need to make sure there is progress. So that adds some layer of intrigue to, to every league game, I guess. But beyond that, the, their top four places are safe and second really should be well within reach. Yeah, particularly with City taking on Leicester as well on Saturday night. You know, United could get a bit of a bumper on, on Leicester City as well and really strengthen their grip on second. Samuel, yourself, what type of lineup would you go for? I guess there's maybe a bit of debate on who starts in goal, but I'm, I'm sensing that both of you would go for Henderson. <laughs> uh, objectively, yeah, I, I would go with Henderson. I think it just makes sense given uh, his career trajectory, uh, his, his form of late. Um, it's, it's just the passing of the guard. It's, it's probably been overdue as well. But De Gea, in fairness to him, in his last game, he, he produced one of the saves of the season against Chelsea, which feels like a long time ago now. But just the, the consistency Henderson has had, I think that it probably causes more ruptures just to, to to take Henderson out of out the team. Because if you do that, I think then he, he might just kick off really, and he'll be starting to to look elsewhere for the summer. Unfortunately for United, you know they've put that they've had found themselves in this position where they've got, well, three international goalkeepers, if you include Romero as well. And you don't, you only need one international goalkeeper. It's it's difficult to maintain that balance. In fairness, they did do that with De Gea and Romero for quite a while, whilst Romero was in the Argentina setup. But I just don't think Argentina, certainly in my lifetime, they've never been, it's, sorry, it's never been a country that's been synonymous with producing really good goalkeepers. So that was just about manageable. When you're talking about a Spain international and an England international, it's it's sustainable for a very, very short period of time. And Southgate's maybe done a pretty good job of making it sustainable for as long as he has done. But I just think that it's it's logical now just to keep Henderson in. And if Henderson makes an error, then you've got, you know, I think it'd be presumed that De Gea would come in for the next game against Granada anyway. And then maybe De Gea can keep his place there for the next league game the, the following weekend, which is Tottenham away, I believe. So... Yeah, I, I, I think really the you know t- ties covered it already, um, mostly in terms of the players who should come in. As long as there's not an axis of Fred and McTominay or Fred and Matic or McTominay and Matic for a home game against Brighton, I think I'll be um, I'll be quite content with what team Solskjaer goes with. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, who knows about that one? You never know what Solskjaer's going to do. Do you? usually when he rules a player out, they usually start. So who knows? Marshall could be leading the line for all we know. Ty, for yourself, what's your prediction for the game? Uh, I'm always going to bring back that Sheffield United prediction you had where you said it was the safest win of the season. They lost at home. <laughs> so, so what are you saying, Brighton at home? I think this could be a tough one, actually, for United. They've, they've had troubles against Brighton, more away from home, really. But it feels like they owe Brighton some points after what happened in uh, September at, at the Amex. Uh, they absolutely stood. They should have worn a mask on the way home. They probably did wear a mask on the way home after uh, taking those three points. It was... You know, it, it was a, a one-sided game that somehow United won 3-2. You know, Brighton will come and give it a go. That's how they play under Graham Potter. And if United are short in attack, it could be it could be tight. So I'll go with 2-1 United, but a draw wouldn't surprise me, I have to say. Really? Samuel Solskjaer said it was a press result, didn't he? But they're always tough games. And he said there's a glint in the players' eyes when they <laughs> are preparing to play Brighton because they respect yeah. them so much. Um, you know, I mean, again, it's being respectful to them, whatever, but if United have, actually have aspirations of of, retain, of winning the title in the next few years, you've got to be just winning those games comfortably. You do. And the, the Brighton game in September, I think it was, was a horrific one to cover because it ended 2-2 at full time, yet the, the result ended up 3-2 with, with that penalty being awarded up after the, the final whistle, which was just you know, surreal stuff. But United were absolutely awful that day. It's, it's 
probably one of their worst wins in for the actual overall performance level. Brighton, watching Brighton that day, and I maintain, I think Brighton have been one of the best teams United have actually come up against this season. Their, their performance that day, there's so much to like about them. I think their, their biggest enemy was the woodwork. I think they hit the posts of the bar three or four times. It was a you know, one of those just ridiculous early season games that seemed to come you know every week. We've not had many of them recently, probably the... Uh, West Ham Arsenal one was rare example in in recent months. Um, but Brighton, as I said, there's a lot to like about them. I like the, their setup. They've they've made some pretty decent signings, and I think the players operate in a good way for them. But they've they've struggled scoring goals, and therefore they've they've struggled to win football matches, and they're in the position they're in. But I think Potter's done a pretty good job there, even though they maybe have underachieved this season given the squad that he's assembled uh but but looking ahead to the weekend it, i mean united should should really be looking to win that game comfortably despite how Solskjaer has built Brighton up today but it's one of the games that we sort of say it's the cliche and that United can only really lose from it they have a win and they don't get much credit or they don't win and they get absolutely hammered for it but we will wait and see what happens both of you I hope you enjoy your Easter and I hope you enjoy your Easter as well if you're listening at home Samuel Ty thank you very much for joining us Thank you, Rich. Happy happy Easter to everyone. Yeah, could it be the resurrection of Oliver Solskjaer's Manchester United? Who knows after that dismal game against Leicester? But we will wait and see. We'll be back next week to analyse the game against Brighton and we'll look ahead to that Europa League first leg against Granada. That's all for today on the Manchester Red Podcast. As always, please do leave a like and subscribe if you haven't already. We'll see you again next time.